Our society admires people who stand firm, people who hold to their convictions, people who are courageous and bold and they cannot be bought, they can't be intimidated, they can't be defeated. Our society doesn't like people who waffle on the issues or who refuse to take a stand, especially when a stand is desperately needed or claim to take a stand, but yet they constantly seem to step back whenever they are pressed. Rudyard Kipling addressed this in his famous poem, poem, If. You'll recognize these words. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good or talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat these two imposters just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on a turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they're gone and so hold on where there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. <coughs> Kipling's poem is a picture of stability, a picture of standing firm. It speaks of conviction, integrity, credibility, uncompromising devotion to virtue. And if these are admirable qualities to the world, at times like these, I was watching NBC Nightly News the other night, and they showed a map of the world as Peter Jennings came on, and they showed all the places where, th where the, the world is literally on fire. And then he said, you know, it seems like the whole world is coming apart. And then he went on with the, the nightly news. If the world is in need of these admirable qualities that Kipling talked about, the uncompromising devotion to virtue, how much more so do we need to see them in the church of Jesus Christ? The very name Christian identifies us with Jesus, Christian the most perfect model of uncompromising, courageous integrity who ever lived. When the Apostle Paul wrote to his beloved Philippians, he was concerned about their spiritual stability. So please turn once again to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians at verse 1. should have mentioned this if you're using the Bible and the racks under the seat. It's on page 1437. We've been on page 1437. That's the only page that's going to be worn out in the new Bibles here pretty soon. But his concern for the Philippians was their spiritual stability. So look at the first verse again of the fourth chapter. 
He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. In this way, Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. And then he gives a list, as it were, of how we are to stand firm. We, are, we see that we are to live in harmony with one another. He exhorted Judea and Syntyche to do so. And then he exhorted Clement and the fellow workers and the unnamed yoke fellow to help these women to be able to stand in in harmony and be able to stand firm. And then in verse 4, we stand firm by rejoicing in the Lord always. And then he emphasizes it. Again, I say rejoice. And in verse 5, we are spiritually stable when our gentle spirits are known by all men. Now, if you have your Bible open, I want you to look at the end of verse 5. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, what Paul says at the end of that fifth verse because this entire section of scripture, these first nine verses of Philippians chapter four, hinge on what Paul says at the end of verse five. This is the hinge on which everything else turns. You will not be able to be in harmony in the Lord. You'll not be able to rejoice in the Lord always. You will not be known for your gentle spirit. You will be anxious, worried, full of doubt, full of fear. You will not be able to think pure and noble thoughts. You will not experience the peace of God unless it is supported and hinged on what Paul says at the end of verse 5. And what does he say there? The Lord is near. The Lord is near. We are to stand firm. How did Paul say? In the Lord. We are to live in harmony. Why? Because we are in the Lord. We are to be anxious for nothing, not worry about anything. Why? Because the Lord is near. What we know of God what we know of God is the most important feature of being spiritually stable. What we know of God is the key to harmony. What we know of God is the key to rejoicing. The key for manifesting a gentle spirit and not being anxious about things. What we know of God is the key to spiritual stability. The Lord who is near is the almighty, true, and living God. The God who is revealed to us in Scripture who is made real to us through his Holy Spirit. And those who delight in his holy power, in his love, in his wisdom, and cultivate that deep knowledge of him by studying and meditating on his word will live the foundation of that truth. We will nurture our relationship with him. We will spend time in his presence, in prayer, and in adoring him. We will worship him. We will listen to him. We will get to know him in experience. And these, Paul says, will be spiritually stable. On account of the presence of God, on account of a deep knowledge of him, believers are to be anxious for nothing. Why? Because nothing is outside of his sovereign will. Nothing is outside of his, his control. Nothing is too difficult for God to handle. And that's the first thing we need to understand when it comes to worry. This is what the Lord Jesus wanted us to understand when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. So turn to the sixth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin at verse 25 in a little bit. That's on page 1196 in the Bibles in the rack. You'll recognize these words as coming from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And in his sermon, Jesus gives us a cure for worry, a cure for anxiety. And before I read it in verses 25 through 34, I want to point out what Jesus has to say about God. 
What he says about your heavenly father. What he wants us to know about God. Because what? What we know about God is the most important thing when it comes to spiritual stability. When it comes to worry. So I want you to look at verse 26. And I want you to underline or circle the words, your heavenly father. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. Why do you think God or Jesus chose to refer to God as heaven, our heavenly father here? Well, in this chapter in Matthew, he's already taught the disciples to pray, what? Our father who is in heaven. When Jesus instructs us to address God as our Father who is in heaven, he wants us to know that all the resources of heaven are available to us. That we can trust God as our heavenly supplier. And then in verse 30, circle the word God. But if God so clothes the grass of the field... He is the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the creator of the the grass, the the same God who said, let there be light and there was light. He is the one who said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. When I went to Israel, one of the highlights was the opportunity to preach from God's word, teach from God's word on the Sermon on the Mount at probably the very near spot where Jesus said these words, the Mount of Beatitudes on the Sea of Galilee. And the day that we were there, the whole hillsides were covered with mustard flower blossoms, yellow and green all over the place. And it was just beautiful. And, and one of the guys in the tour, he came up to me with his finger and said, look at that, look at that. I'm going, what, you hurt your finger? Do you need a medic or what's it? No, he says, look at that. And at the end of his finger, he had a little tiny mustard seed that I could hardly see. He was saying, look at that. I believe that when Jesus taught in that very spot, the lilies were in blossom. Much the same way the mustard flowers were in blossom that day. Because he pointed to them and he said in verse 28, And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil. They do not spin. What is Jesus doing here? He's building his case for the cure for worry solidly on the nature of in the character of God who created all things. And then in verse 32, we see the words Heavenly Father again. In verse 32, your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Circle Heavenly Father. And in verse 33, you see the word His twice. You can circle it twice. Circle it both times. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus already taught us in the Lord's Prayer, for yours, our Heavenly Father, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So how can we worry when it's our Heavenly Father's righteousness, our Heavenly Father's kingdom, whose kingdom and power and glory is forever? Now with that in mind, let's let's read the words that Jesus said about worry. Beginning at verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried, 
about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not worth much more? Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Literally, it says, for tomorrow will worry for itself. It personifies the day. Yeah, let it worry. Yeah, let it worry. So let's go back to Paul's prescription for worry in Philippians chapter 4. In verse 6 of this fourth chapter, he says, Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Warren Wiersbe wrote that, If anybody had an excuse for worrying, it was the Apostle Paul. His beloved Christian friends at Philippi were disagreeing with one another, and he was not there to help them. We have no idea what Judea and Syntyche were disputing about, but whatever it was, it was bringing division into the church. Along with the potential division in Philippi, Paul had to face division among the believers at Rome. We saw that in Philippians chapter 1. Added to these burdens was the possibility of his own death. Yet Paul had a good excuse for worry, but he did not. Instead, he took time to explain to us the secret of victory over worry. So what is worry? The Greek word translated anxious or anxiety here or worry or careful in some translations means to be pulled in different directions. Pulled in different directions. It's literally having our minds stretched or pulled in different directions. Our hopes pull us in one direction. Our fears pull us in the opposite direction. And we feel like we're pulled apart. The old English word for which we translate or get the word worry means to strangle. To strangle. If you're ever really worried about something, you know how it strangles a person. In fact, worry has definite physical consequences. There's headaches, neck pain, stomach problems, back pains. Worry affects our thinking. It affects our digestion. It affects even our coordination. From the spiritual point of view, worry is wrong thinking. That's how it has to do with the mind. Worry is wrong thinking and worry is wrong feelings. It has to do with the emotions as well. And worry is the greatest thief of joy. You can't do both at the same time. But it's not enough for us to tell ourselves to quit worrying. Have you ever tried to do that? Because it'll never capture the thief. Worry's an inside job. And it takes more than good intentions to get victory over worry. Worry is not something that we have within ourselves to solve with positive thinking. Or by trying to brighten our outlook. I just need to be a happier person. Or, or trying to change our disposition. And, and often we can't even change our circumstances. Or we can't change what's going on with the person we're worried about. 
To solve our worry, we don't have what it takes physically or emotionally at all. But both the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul give us the same prescription for worry. When we are worried, when we are anxious, when we are distraught, what is our reaction supposed to be? And we find it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now notice that Paul just didn't say, well, pray about it. Just, just pray about it. Prayer, prayer solves all things. Paul was too wise for that. So to describe the right kind of praying that cures our worry and anxiety, he uses three different words to describe prayer. He uses prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. And right praying that cures our worry involves all three. First of all, we have prayer. Prayer is the general word for taking our request before God. And the word prayer, as we find it in Scripture, carries the idea of adoration, devotion, and worship. In fact, the word that is translated prayer is often used in Scripture to refer to a place of prayer. You remember that when Paul and his companions first went to Philippi, they were looking for a synagogue where they could teach the gospel on a Sabbath morning, and they didn't find a synagogue in town. And so they went down by the river, supposing that there would be a place of prayer. That phrase, place of prayer, is a translation of the single word that's translated just prayer. He went down to the river because there would be prayer there. And so the word translated prayer refers not only to what's going on, but it refers to that place of prayer. Prayer, in other words, is where you go and what you do when you worship and adore God and express your devotion to him. That's what prayer is. Whenever we find ourselves worrying, our first action ought to be what? Get alone with God. Adore him. Worship him. Adoration is what is needed. We must bring ourselves, in other words, to see the greatness and the majesty of God. And that's why we started this message this morning with what Jesus said about our Heavenly Father in Matthew. We must realize that God is big enough to solve our problems. Too often we rush into his presence, we take our prayer list, we hastily go through our needs, and there are times where we need to approach his throne calmly with deepest reverence. Have you ever gone to the Lord in prayer and just felt like, man, it's just bouncing off the ceiling? I'm not getting anywhere. I, I, I don't feel his presence. I wonder if God really cares what's going on in my life. You, you think you know better, but you just can't get past what you feel or don't feel at the moment. Here's what, I've do, what I do, and I found out it works every time. When I just don't feel like God cares or I don't sense his presence or it's bouncing off the ceiling, I just start praising God. Oftentimes I'll pull out the guitar and start doing a praise song that uh, relates to, to who our God is. I meditate on a scripture verse that causes me to think rightly about God, who he is and what he has done. I begin with adoration and very soon I begin to experience his presence and his care and his comfort. Then I can lay out my request to God. So the first step in right praying that cures our worry is adoration. The second step, Paul calls it supplication. What is supplication? Supplication is an earnest sharing of our needs and problems. Don't miss that. It's an earnest sharing. 
In other words, there's no place for heartfelt or half-hearted, insincere prayer. Turn once again to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this time in chapter 7 of Matthew, the 7th chapter. At verse 7. In the 7th chapter of Matthew, Jesus shows us that our Heavenly Father wants us to be earnest by our asking. And I think of verses 7 through 11 here of Matthew chapter 7 as the 7 prayer. Because it's just the opposite of what we think of the 7 stores. It's not fast prayer. It's not fast service. It's earnest, heartfelt prayer in verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, ask in verse 7, it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. All the verbs there in the original language are in the present continual sense. Keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking. Verse 7. For everyone who keeps on asking receives, and he who keeps on seeking finds, and to him who keeps on knocking it will be opened unto him. We realize that our Heavenly Father wants us to be earnest in our asking. And that's the way Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 tells us about the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The writer of the Hebrew says, in the days of Jesus' flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godliness. And while his closest disciples were sleeping, Jesus was sweating great drops of blood, as it were. After adoration and supplication comes appreciation, giving thanks to God. Certainly our Heavenly Father enjoys us as his children saying, thank you, thank you. When Jesus healed ten lepers, only one of them returned to give him thanks. And we wonder if that percentage is any higher today. We're eager to ask, but slow to appreciate and again, if you find this hard to do, to appreciate God in a way that we give him thanks, just turn to one of the psalms. You can almost turn to any of them. Where the psalmist, don't turn to the imprecatory psalms where he's calling God's judgment down on people, but turn to one of those where he's offering you know, the thanks. Like Psalm 136, 1 through 3 that we read this morning. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Why? For his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods. Why? Because his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of God, Lord of Lords. Why? For his loving kindness is everlasting. And what is the result from letting our requests be made known to God by prayer, supplications, and thanksgiving? We find it at verse 7 at Philippians chapter 4. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul counseled us to take everything to God in prayer. We heard from Josh this morning, in everything, give thanks to God for everything. You know, we're prone to pray only about the big stuff until the little things get out of control and then they become the big stuff. And then we will start praying about it. Talking to God about everything, whatever's going on in our lives, whatever we're worried about, whatever we're concerned about, every little thing is the first step towards victory over worry. The result is that the peace of God guards the heart and the mind. You remember that when Paul wrote this, he was chained to a Roman soldier, guarded day and night. 
In a like manner, our Heavenly Father gives us his peace. The peace of God stands guard over the two areas that create worry. And what creates worry? The heart which gives way to wrong feelings and the mind which gives way to wrong thinking. Worry is generated either from what we feel about things or what we think about things. And our feelings are usually generated by what we think about things. You know, when we gave our hearts to Jesus Christ in salvation, we experienced what the book of Romans calls the peace of God. The peace of God. But this does not mean that we're not going to have trials. This doesn't mean that we're not going to have difficulties that come from the outside. But what it does mean is that we're going to have confidence from within. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what people are doing, or what things are, we have that inner peace that he gives us. In John chapter 14, verse 27, when Jesus was in the upper room, he promised that he would give his disciples peace. My peace I give unto you. My peace, not as the world gives, I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Some missionary Bible translators were working very hard when they were working on the translation of the Gospel of John to find a word for peace in a primitive tribal language. And last, a native who was working with them found a combination of words that had the concept, a heart that sits down. A heart that sits down. So they translated John 14, 27 as having Jesus say, I will make your heart sit down. <laughs> what the world can't do, I will make your heart sit down. Jesus, or, or Daniel, gave us a wonderful illustration of peace through prayer. We saw this in our study of Daniel and in our Sunday school class. When the king announced that none of his subjects was to pray to anyone except the king on the threat of death, Daniel the prayer went to his room, he opened his windows towards Jerusalem, and he prayed as he always, always done. And this is how Daniel prayed, according to Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. He prayed and gave thanks before his God, and he made supplication. Same three words. He prayed and he gave thanks before his God and made supplication. And the result was perfect peace in the midst of difficulty. And what was his difficulty? This little thing called the lion's den where those guys are really hungry. But Daniel was able to spend the night with the lions in perfect peace. Daniel slept while the king in the palace could not sleep. That's kind of telling, isn't it? Shall we pray? Father, we, we thank you that you have given us your word, and sometimes that word is just so wonderfully practical. Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer in that sense that we can come before you, we can experience your presence, we can adore you, we can love you, we can get to know more of who you are. And Father, you don't want us to just rattle off a list, but you want us to spend time in your presence and and with earnest prayer, with supplication, let our requests be made known to you. And Father, we do thank you 
that you are a God who hears our prayers. You are a God who cares. You are a God to whom we can go. We can enter into your presence and come into your presence. And like Hezekiah went into the temple of God after getting a threatening letter from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, that basically said, we're going to take you out. Lots of cause for worry. And Lord, there's lots of cause for worry going in around our world today. But Father, we can come into your presence and like Hezekiah, just take that threatening letter and roll it out before you. Lay it out before you, Lord. And he left it with you. With earnestness, with adoration, with thanksgiving. And Father, whether they're little things or big things, that's what you want each of us to do. And we thank you for it. And Lord, I pray that each one of us, even this day, will find that time, find that place of prayer where there will be prayer there as we come into your presence and we love you and we adore you and we make our requests made known to you and we thank you. Father, may it be a habit of our daily lives. And for this we pray in Jesus' name.